This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, a State Department cable obtained by Politico shows American embassies scrambling to address the growing number of Russians trying to gain entry into the U.S. I'll speak to the reporter who broke the story. Then, what happens when artificial intelligence systems fail on the battlefield? talk about the best ways to manage that risk and understanding why Russia threatens to use nuclear weapons and recalibrating an American strategy. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. In the wake of Moscow's invasion of Ukraine, thousands of Russians are fleeing their country. Many are seeking entry into the United States, leaving embassies around the world scrambling. Nahal Tusi is a senior foreign affairs correspondent for Politico. Nahal, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So who is fleeing Russia now? What types of people are we seeing trying to get into the U.S.? Well, it's getting harder to flee Russia, but we're talking about Um, people from uh, political dissidents to LGBTQ activists to journalists uh, to scientists and technology workers who feel like uh, due to the sanctions, uh, there's just not really a future for them in Russia. So it's a wide array of people uh, basically fleeing uh, Putin's rule as well as uh, economic uh, failures in the long run. So what are the current estimates as to the number of Russians who have fled their country since the invasion of Ukraine? Well, we believe there's several hundred thousand. Uh, It's hard to know exactly how many. I mean, there was one figure the other day of 3.8 million Russians leaving, but that apparently included, um, you know, normal travel. So it was hard to say how many people were leaving for sure, but the numbers were higher than normal. And so it's definitely uh, at least several hundred thousand. So what's been the administration's response? You obtained a cable from the State Department talking about this. What did it say? Yeah, so basically, you know, Russians are showing up at U.S. embassies all over the world trying to get visas to the United States, saying, you know, they want to come as tourists or whatever. And there's certain, certainly a sense that many of them intend to stay once they get here seeking asylum and that sort of thing. The administration, the Biden administration, um, really hasn't quite figured out exactly how to deal with this. Uh, this cable was sent to the embassies so that consular officials who give out visas and things uh, can know a little bit about how to deal with Russians, since many of them don't normally deal with Russians. Uh, the administration is trying to reduce some visa requirements for Russian scientists. Uh, that's a way they can kind of Uh, accelerate brain drain, get some of the best people from Russia and hurt Vladimir Putin. Uh, At the same time, they're looking at ways to expand the U.S. refugee program uh, so that Russians can access it better, but they still aren't giving any details on that. Uh, As you said, there is a White House proposal to facilitate Russian scientists and engineers in certain fields to come into the country. Can you give us a little bit more detail on that and where that proposal stands right now? That's right. So the White House is uh, asking Congress to pass this into law. And basically what it does is it reduces some of the visa requirements for certain Russians who are in fields like 
artificial intelligence, engineering. Uh, I think chemistry is probably one of them. Nuclear is probably one of them. Uh, and one of the things that they, for instance, would want to remove is a requirement that an employer sponsor you. Uh, that's a big requirement. Uh, so it's the type of thing that whatever ends up going into law, it's about making it easier for those people to find a way to the United States. And what has been the reaction from Congress? Do they seem likely to pass that? That's a really tricky one. Uh, you know, I, there's a sense in Congress that you definitely want to help Ukrainians, uh, but it's not quite clear how much they're willing to go to help Russians. And to be honest, a lot of the Russians who are leaving, um, you know, some of it's for economic reasons. Others are genuinely fleeing what they feel is political persecution. Uh, and a lot of them will tell you that, you know, they feel like Ukrainians should definitely be ahead of them in line. You report that um, thousands of Russians and Ukrainians have arrived at the U.S.-Mexico border asking for asylum. How did they get there and are, are they treated any differently from others that arrive at that same border? Yeah, so a lot of Russians are able to get to Latin American countries because some of those countries don't necessarily require a visa. So you can just go there and then you can travel up until you reach the border uh, between the U.S. and Mexico. Now, a lot of Ukrainians are getting there the same way. Because the U.S. is using Title 42 rules to deny a lot of uh, applicants or people trying to cross the border uh, for asylum, they're denying them under these Title 42 health rules that are put in place because of the coronavirus. Many of these Russians are not being allowed to cross the border. But the U.S. is allowed to make exceptions on a case-by-case -case basis, and it seems like it is making those exceptions for Ukrainians. Uh, and that's been a bit of a it's a tricky tricky situation because you know both groups feel like they are fleeing Vladimir Putin to a certain extent explain how the refugee resettlement program works how long does it take because I understand there are Afghans that are still being processed yeah, so the refugee resettlement program can take years and years for someone to go through. Uh, typically what happens is someone goes to another country from their own country and they go to the United Nations, they apply to be a refugee, the UN has to accept them, and then they might get placed uh, in a long line uh, of people who are uh, eligible for resettlement in the United States as a refugee. And that, again, adds years and years and years as well. Uh, so typically, it's very difficult to get to the U.S. through the refugee program. And under the Trump years, it became even harder because the Trump administration dramatically reduced the number of refugees it was willing to admit and cut back on staff and very much under-resourced uh, the program that was you know, helping these refugees get resettled. The Biden administration is trying to rebuild that program, but it's a long way in going. I mean, they're, they're nowhere near it. And the Afghans who were brought to the United States, <clears throat> sorry, brought to the United States uh, last year, they actually came under a different program, uh, humanitarian parole, and that's a temporary program. But a lot of the same people who help refugees are helping the Afghans, so they're stretched thin that way as well. Nahal, I wonder if there are any security concerns that the U.S. could unknowingly bring in spies or bad actors. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that's one of the concerns that some Republicans have had when it comes to Russians. There was a letter that about 20 Republican lawmakers sent uh, to uh, the Department of Homeland Security in April saying that they were hearing that a lot of Russians are being uh, allowed to cross the border uh, and 
there might be security concerns with some of these folks. And that's that's certainly a possibility every single time in any of these cases. Now, when it comes to the refugee program and um, asylum and things like that, the U.S. says it has very strong vetting procedures uh, to ensure that a lot of these people um, are not security threats. And in the case of Ukrainians, most of them are women and children. Uh, but it's it's very hard to tell. And ultimately, yeah, it's absolutely a risk. All right. Well, Nahal, we appreciate your reporting on this. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks for having me. Coming up on Government Matters, understanding and managing the risks of artificial intelligence in combat. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The use of artificial intelligence in military applications has been increasing. But my guest says it comes with immense risk because those new autonomous systems introduce a possibility of new types of errors that happen in war. Kelsey Atherton is a military technology journalist for the Wars of the Future Past newsletter. Kelsey, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Your article opens with the accidental shootdown of a British fighter jet during the Iraq war. Tell us what happened. So. Two days into the uh, U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003, um, Patriot anti-missile and anti-air batteries were set up. These are designed to intercept incoming missiles, designed to shoot down planes. And they detected, they saw two British tornado jets. These are ground attack jets. They're used to hit targets on the ground. They saw two of them flying, and but it didn't identify them both as uh, friendly jets. It identified the first as a friendly jet and missed that the second one following it, it thought it was a missile. And so the automated systems um, automatically targeted it and shot it down as though it was a missile targeting the Patriot battery. Um, and that was the first uh, RAF casualties of the war. Um, it was friendly fire. Um, the Both, pilot, both uh, crew members on the tornado jet died. It's been almost 20 years since that happened. What are the safeguards in place now with the Patriot missiles that would prevent that kind of error? So among the meaningful changes in safeguards are um, the one of the ones that was supposed to be in place but wasn't quite set up yet or wasn't functioning at the time are uh, friendly and uh, friendly identifiers that the tornado jet would send a signal to the Patriot battery letting it know, no, 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 no I'm actually on your side. Um, that system that failed, but there's another, there's other steps which are um, scaling back the automation. Um, there's steps to uh, put more in human hands to assess the threat level going in to see like, oh, we're expecting to see many, many friendly aircraft and very few missiles. So we can scale back the automation. Um, we can let, if it's a missile coming for our anti-missile battery, we can trust that it will hit the battery instead because the crew will be operating it somewhat remotely. Um, but these are sort of uh, adopted ad hoc. Um, there's not, once the system is in automation, there's very, there's not nearly as many safeguards as uh, you might imagine. So as uh, artificial intelligence technology advances, um, you say that new systems introduce the possibility of new types of error. Explain that. Sure. So when we have a weapon in the field, it can um, fail in some predictable ways, like it won't work, it'll identify the wrong, um, it'll um, hit a wrong target. One of the big changes or one of the kind of new errors is if it interprets something based on training data, and this is a big part of how um, autonomous systems work, is you feed them lots and lots of data, um, it runs it through an iterative process, and it figures out, oh, here's how I identify targets. One of the classic examples, right, is how do you distinguish a 
like wolf from a coyote on training image sets. And if you, um, the AI, the algorithm got really good at it, but it figured out that, oh, if it sees snow in the background, it'll only see, it'll figure out it's a wolf. And if it sees a desert, it'll figure out it's a coyote. And if you apply that to a weapon system, right, where it's like, oh, it's looking for friendly planes or it's looking for missiles um, and you give it the wrong thing, it'll act on information that humans would not expect it to act on. Um, and it'll do it at a very fast speed. That's the point of automated systems is to operate faster than humans can. So I guess the big question here, Kelsey, is how should the Defense Department strike that right balance between human and machine decision making? There's two big approaches. And the first is to, if you're putting an automated system um, into the field, is if you can trust that the automated system can be more expendable than a human uh, piloted or human crewed system, um, you mitigate some of the risk because if the automated system has the speed to act quickly, but can wait to operate until it's very clear that the signal is there. Um, the error is the the risk is that you lose the system, but you don't lose people in the process. Um, and that's just one way too. If you're going to put systems that operate faster than humans, you can you should be able to build in some breathing room so that humans can at least assess what happens before figuring out how to respond. The other way to do it is to actively plan and train on scenarios, on errors. Have scientists looking at how it can fail, how it can go badly, so that it has some understanding of how it will fail in the lab or in training before you have this attached to a live weapon in war. Well, as you were saying before, artificial intelligence is only as good as the data used to train it. Why do you think the DOD has struggled to get good data, which will vastly improve the performance of these weapon systems? So one of the real challenges is finding accurate data of real life situations. And that means having sensors that work, that have sensors that anticipate. Um, we can kind of look at this as a sort of analogy to how self-driving cars are trained, where it takes a tremendous amount of traffic data and even then they're still not anticipating all the scenarios you can encounter in traffic. And traffic um, by and large is not a scenario where the other cars are actively trying to kill the car collecting data. Um, that's not usually how driving works. So. In war, you have to have the data collection in there. You have to trust that you're getting enough of it, and then you have to trust that it will accurately reflect the kind of scenarios that will be encountered in future combat situations. Um, you can do some of this by building synthetic da um, data. You can train or anticipate and sort of teach it. Like, we think this is what will happen, and you put that into the algorithm. Um, or you can do it in training, but it's a lot harder than uh, just capturing all the data you need. And very briefly, Kelsey, you know, in February 2020, the department did release a set of principles of AI ethics. Do you think those principles are enough to address the issues you're discussing? I think the principles are a good start. I think there is a, more work needs to be done. I don't think you can put principles out and say it's just once and done. The uh, when the DOD released the principles, they labeled them 1.0, which uh, suggests that they anticipate change coming. And I think um, as these systems get developed, we should see more change and we'd be disappointed if we don't. All right. Well, I appreciate you joining us, Kelsey. Thanks for your uh, um, coming on the program. A pleasure. Coming next, would Putin go nuclear? Straight ahead on Government Matters, lessons from the Cold War on deterring Russia. We'll be right back.
While a nuclear war should never be fought, my guess is that if the U.S. demonstrates that it's unwilling to do so, the chance that the Kremlin will use nuclear weapons becomes real. Seth Gropsey is the founder and president of the Yorktown Institute. He's also the former deputy undersecretary of the Navy. Seth, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. So what are the circumstances under which Putin would order a nuclear strike on Ukraine, in your view? Uh, if he has, if he feels that he has no other choice, uh, that is to say, if the conventional war that Ukraine is fighting uh, succeeds and blunts every Russian uh, assault, as it has blunted the first one, then the chances that a nuclear, a tactical nuclear weapon would be used go up. So then what would NATO's choices be for a response? Well, there are several. One of them is to do nothing, um, which uh, is sort of symptomatic of what we've seen so far in response to uh, Putin's and uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov's statements, nuclear threats, uh, going on uh, special alert for nuclear forces. That, that's uh, all of those measures have received kind of a shrug from the West. Uh, the other response is to uh, use conventional attacks uh, as a way of demonstrating a NATO resolve. Uh, conventional attacks could include everything from destroying the remaining two uh, Moskva-class cruisers in the eastern Mediterranean uh, to more economic sanctions, uh, to blockading Kaliningrad in the north. But each of those sends a very important message, and that is, if Russia goes nuclear, we won't do it. We will only use conventional means, and that sends uh, a dangerous method, a mes message, excuse me, not only to Russia, but to the rest of the world, our allies and friends and partners so, included. So, Seth, are you recommending then a response directly with uh, a tactical nuclear weapon from the U.S. or from NATO? No, I'm, no, I'm not. I, uh, I, I think that a a reasonable response would be to take the Russian use of nuclear weapons seriously uh, and, for example, to rearm our ships at sea, Navy ships, with nuclear weapons, or to uh, sink a Russian uh, SSBN or a Boomer, one of their uh, one of the submarines that carries uh, nuclear-tipped weapons aboard it. Uh, which they would need for their second strike. Both of those demonstrate uh, resolve and usefulness at a nuclear level without using tactical nuclear weapons. So you recommend rearming U.S. Navy ships with nuclear weapons? In response to the use of a Russian tactical nuclear weapon, yes. And But doesn't this instead feed into um, Putin's paranoia that NATO's out to get him and that NATO wants to launch a first strike against Russia? Well, there's nothing that we can do about uh, paranoia, whether we think he has it or, or not. But there's a great deal that we can do to deter him from using nuclear weapons. And the measures that I'm suggesting 
would help with the latter. Uh, we can't send doctors over there and we don't know what his medical condition is. Seth, you write this quote, the Ukrainian choice won't be between death and survival, but rather armed resistance and unarmed extermination. Does that mean that there's no chance for a diplomatic solution here? I don't think that there's no chance for a diplomatic solution. Um, I, I, I think that if, um, if Russia persists and if Ukraine remains successful, that we're heading for a standoff. And my concern about that standoff is that the Russians would choose to end it by using nuclear weapons. But I, I, don't, I do not rule out a diplomatic solution. And I think that one should be sought. So what lessons would you draw then from the Cold War with the Soviet Union for today's war? Uh, the most important lesson is that, uh, that a, a clear, persuasive, and powerful, and modern, uh, up-to-date nuclear deterrent uh, that, that lets the other side know that there would be an unacceptable cost for beginning a nuclear conflict is our best defense. All right. Well, Seth, we appreciate you being on the program, and uh, let's, let's hope that uh, we never have to talk about this. Thank you so let, much. Let, let's hope. Thank you, Mimi. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite 
connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.